When you're known as Boston's jeweler to the stars and as Donna Diamonds, you must have a lot of stories to tell, right? Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, a woman who was born into the world of diamonds and gems. Her father opened the doors to his first jewelry store in Boston just after World War II. And the credo still remains. Build relationships, one customer, one family at a time. And that's just one of the reasons why I wanted to interview this generous, talented, memorable, philanthropic woman who has even been named to the 100 women who run this town list by Boston Magazine. She's a diamond expert who has shared her talents on radio and television and has been featured in magazines. She's an expert witness in court cases involving diamonds and gems and is even an appraiser for the FBI. And then there's the other part of her life, which is completely different. She's an accomplished, classically trained pianist. And most of her early life was spent in music and entertainment, until it became, in her words, more jewelry and less showbiz. Her love for the arts was validated in 2016, when she was appointed by the governor to the elite board of humanities. She is my friend, and her name is Donna DePrisco, and this is her story. Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. Boy, you really built me up there. You made me feel really good. My Donna ego's going to be flying. Here we go. Going to be flying today with the ego. <laughs> okay. Donna, take me back to your father's founding of DePrisco Jewelers, 1948. Well, if truth be told, my mother was a jeweler before my father was a jeweler. So it was your mom first. Right. And actually, they met, like many couples, after the Second World War in a dance venue here in Boston. There were many of them, Norm Bega, the Raymore Playmore. They met, and of course, they fell in love, and they got married in 1946. My mother was already in the business. My father wanted to be a police officer. I don't know if he wanted to be a statey or a local police officer, but she said, oh, no, oh, no, you're going to be a jeweler. So she introduced him to the world of jewelry and jewelry making, which they did when they were young. In 1948, they were making jewelry and selling it. They actually opened this location in 1950. Well, it's interesting because we are sitting right here in your father's office. Your mom and dad are still alive. How old are they? They are 96 and 97, and they just celebrated 75 years of marriage. You were raised in Wellesley, Massachusetts, now my hometown as well, since I've lived there for so many years. Paint us a picture of what life was like in your house. Brothers, sisters, how many people in your family? Okay, I have two brothers. One went to heaven seven years ago, and I have my younger sister, who is 18 years my junior. Catholic school for all of us. We had a great neighborhood with lots of friends and we're always playing outside. And I was lucky to have grown up in that town. And I try and give back because I was fortunate to grow up in Wellesley where tennis courts and pools and all of that business. But we had a good, good childhood. Who were your role models when you were growing up? Being a musician, I had many role models, mostly pianists, mostly men. My aspiration was to be a female conductor and to be in some form of the entertainment industry, but my serious music turned to commercial music for many reasons. So, piano. When did you start playing the piano? I started to play the piano when I was around eight years old. In Wellesley, they had a branch of the New England Conservatory, and my teacher, who taught in Boston and in Wellesley, had many recitals and concerts. And at the age of 12, I got to play in Jordan Hall. And in my later life, 
I have been a trustee at the New England Conservatory, no longer. But the talent remains, but the technique is somewhat gone. So I'm going to guess that even as an adolescent, you got a chance to play on some very big stages. I did. Tell I, me about that. I did. I, it was a, quite a thrill to play in Recital Hall, Jordan Hall, and I also did a small concert with another young man in the Isabella Gardner Stewart Museum when I was, I think, 15 or 16. That was a real thrill. You were accepted into Juilliard at 16 and a half. Tell me that story. My mother and I went to New York on the train for my audition. It was really, really scary. And I remember when I was accepted, the principal in the school that I went to, which is no longer there, it's now Mass Bay Community College, but it was a Catholic girls' school at the time, announced that I was accepted. But, you know, I was immature. And they did not have dormitories at Juilliard. You have to stay in an apartment. And I was just turning 17 in August. And my father said, no, you're too young to go into an apartment in New York. You have and to. And live by yourself. Yeah, or with a roommate. And he knew I had a little wild streak. So <laughs> he said, wait. So I went to yet another Catholic girls' school and studied music again and then came back to Boston. I only stayed there one year and went to all the conservatories and went to Berkeley and tried to gather up my credits And I was working here and doing other things, and one thing led to the other, and then I just stayed in the jewelry business. Well, you went from classical to commercial music at 18, and you were earning a living until you are about 24 years old. Take us back to that time in your life. Well, in Boston, the kids from the conservatory, they had things called singing waiters and waitresses. Back then, Pier 4 was the only game in town. The only game in town. It was so popular, there was a two-hour wait for dinner. So on the Peter Stuyvesant, which sunk during the blizzard of 78, we had a wonderful review there to entertain the guests. And then they would come back after dinner and we'd do another show. So singing and playing the piano. Right, but I was a belter. I'm not a trained singer. I was a belter. Oh, you and I have to sing together someday. That'll be so much fun. Those were really fun times. You know, it's interesting. Watching you, your whole face lights up when you talk about that time in your life. Yeah, it was great. It's hard to leave a gift like that behind and turn the page. How did you do that? You suddenly decided that you were going to be in the jewelry business? How did that happen? Well, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons. I felt like things happened within the business, and I felt the business needed me. But I will tell you something about the entertainment industry, because we always have our fingers in the pie. My brother did work in California when he lived there. My sister is a professional ballroom dancer. Uh, My other brother was a percussionist, the brother that went to heaven seven years ago. So many musical talents. Oh, my father was a percussionist. My mother can sing. My grandfather was a a very good tenor. So anyway, what happened with this, and and I don't have, do I have regrets? A little bit, but not too much. And I'll tell you what really made me happy and content. My brother is married to the widow of Patrick Swayze, and her name is Lisa Swayze. She did not change her name and take the name to Prisco. She's a lovely, lovely person, highly talented herself. Her husband made it. She didn't quite make it, although she made a film. But she was in a few Broadway shows, and she's a tremendous dancer. So when they were first courting before they got married, she was down at the Cape. And, you know, I guess in those days you could had to act, sing, and dance. So there were some things playing, and, and I started to go along with the Broadway show tunes. 
And she's like, hmm, how do you know that? And then we did more and more and more. And my brother Albert was singing and we were carrying on and dancing and so forth. Boy, do I wish I had a ticket to that event. <laughs> no. So she said, you know, you guys, you're really talented, but I want to tell you something. You stood a much better chance being successful in the jewelry business than you would have in the entertainment business, even though you're talented. And when she said that, I felt good. That you'd made the right decision. Yeah, I felt good. You know, what's interesting about what you're saying is when you go to a school like Juilliard, had you gone, or if you go to Berkeley, you're suddenly immersed in a world where you may have been the best pianist or the best singer in your town, but when all the people from around the world come into one place, that it's talent true. goes way up the ladder, it's doesn't it? true. Tell us a little bit about deciding that you're going to be in the jewelry business. I'm guessing that then you have to be trained. You have to be certified as a gemologist. Yeah. I did not get my gemology degree until 19... 19- 85, I think, when my sister went to California to get her degree, and I got like an accelerated course. But there's nothing like experience. Experience. And I had great teachers. Of course. Great teachers, you know? Yeah. So we hear, teach me a little bit about the diamond business. We hear a lot about blood diamonds and oh, diamonds yes. that your diamonds are all sourced in a certain way. Explain yeah. that to me. Responsibly sourced. You know, this is uh, brings up a call I just had just before you came in asking if we had synthetic, not synthetic, lab-created diamonds, which have the same chemical properties as a real diamond. But guess what, Candy? They're not real. If you don't dig it out of the ground, it's not real. People get angry with me, other people in the industry. We don't carry them. Tiffany doesn't carry them. The better stores do not carry them. The thing with the blood diamonds, and I think a lot of millennials specifically are concerned about this because of the responsible sourcing. They want to make sure that these are all okay. In 1997, I was asked to go to Washington to work on the Kimberly process, which sources all diamonds responsibly. Every diamond that comes into the United States and in Europe, it's bagged, coming into the United States and all over the world. It's called the Kimberly process. Anyone can look it up. I am sure there's some unscrupulous people who smuggle diamonds, but it's so few and far between you know, they would not get into any legitimate stores. There's just too, too, too little of them. But I had the opportunity to speak to Congress and do all this when they were passing the law through Joe Moakley. Um, and it was perhaps a very, very exciting time for me. So, so this is how when diamonds come into the United States, we are sure that they've been sourced responsibly. Absolutely. What does absolutely. that mean to be sourced responsibly? Okay. Well, the process of diamonds is naturally they dig them and then they go to uh, the sorting and then after they're sorted, they go to the Central Selling Organization, which has only 100, it used to be 158 buyers, but it's only about 120 now. They buy the loose rough and then they cut them. They cannot be sold unless they're bagged as being responsible. It's all very, very controlled. But this happens in London because De Beers is a monopoly and you can't have a monopoly in this country. And they control, you know, about 80% of the diamonds. You have been our family's jeweler since my husband, Thank you. my husband Tom, my second husband, and my daughter walked into your store in 2005 and bought me the most beautiful ring ever. And then Thank a few you. years later, you designed my mother's ring, which I'm wearing right now, which honors my son and my daughter and my three stepchildren. And then my son, an active duty special forces soldier, was about to deploy 
And I brought him in here because he wanted to put a ring on his girlfriend's finger before he left. Your website says jewelry has always been a symbol, an expression of love for one another. Donna, it must be such an honor to be part of these happiest times in people's lives. Oh, it is. It is. It is. It really is. And I thank you for your business. When I first started to sell diamonds, I I kind of, they're contemporaries in the same wavelength. Then as time went by, it was more like, you know, an older sister. And now I am older than most of their mothers, (laughs) or at least the same age. And these young men, for the most part, are so earnest. I mean, they make a big production. Before it was just take the young lady to a restaurant or take her to the Cape or whatever. And there's many, many stories with that. Give her the diamond. Now... It's a complete production where most of them will give the diamond and then they'll have the family in the wings to come in for a special party. So it's just, yeah, it does warm my heart. Donna, can you also give us just a little basic lesson on clarity for diamonds? The most important thing is the cut, not the shape, the cut, but how the diamond cutter takes the piece of rough, which is like a rock. It looks like rock candy, actually, candy, (laughs) and they cleave the facets into the diamond and it all depends on how expert they are that gives the shine the second thing is the color how white it is how clear it is the clarity is nothing the clarity you can only see under magnification and it's the third thing in order of pricing you've learned it firsthand from donna diamonds yeah and it's not my rule that's just the rule if you could have one piece of jewelry in the world what would it be Me? Yes. Oh, I never gave it any thought. Is there a famous piece of jewelry that you've ever seen? Oh, I've seen lots of famous pieces of jewelry, and I've seen lots of very large diamonds. I suppose just one nice, you know, diamond of any shape. Tell me about your work as an expert witness in cases involving diamonds and gems. I'm fascinated. Yeah, a long time ago, I think it was when Frank Bellotti was the attorney general. That's really long because Frank is 98 now. The consumer division called me. I was doing a lot of on-camera work for consumer questions with, with Paula Lyons and Susan Warnick and Hank Philippi Ryan. I would answer all their questions. And there was a case involving emeralds that were being sold for $5 a carat. It was quite a case. And I testified in that and things that are like that, okay, where the public, the general public for class action suits are being cheated. You also work with the FBI. Any stories or any details you can give us? Just a, just a little detail. When I first started to do it, maybe 22, 23 years ago, the merchandise that I was appraising, it's the merchandise that the marshals confiscated. And by the looks of the merchandise, there were very heavy chains that go around the neck, the Mr. T-type, and big bracelets and very gaudy things that obviously came from drug dealers. Now, the past 10 to 12 years, it's much less of that and more dignified merchandise, special watch collections, special diamonds, that obviously is from white-collar crime. I also did the appraisal for Whitey Bulger's merchandise, You are kidding me. No, and it wasn't that much. I expected them to come in with tons of things. It was only like maybe a half dozen rings or whatever, but they came with a lot of coins. And the coins were really not worth a lot, maybe a few thousand dollars. And I said to the marshals, take each individual coin, even if it's a quarter, package it separately, and the provenance will get you a lot of money for the victims. They took my advice and they did. Good for you. 
You have also served, Donna, on many boards, including Catholic Charities, the Boston Public Library, the Museum of Fine Arts, donating your time and your treasure. What has this work meant to you personally? It has meant a lot, and it has helped me. Sitting in those boardrooms, it was a great honor that Mayor Menino, who I miss very much. We all do. Oh, yeah. I miss him. It's been, I think, six A stellar human being. Yeah. When he appointed me to the Boston Public Library, I'm like, Mayor... I love you, but I don't even have a library card. He said, that doesn't matter. I've heard you at meetings. I want you to go there. And I did, and I was a holdover for like 17 years. But it taught me a lot in the venue of sitting in these very important meetings with these important people, like Billy Bulger, like William O. Taylor. And my favorite of all was David McCullough. He was on the board with me and and a few others. I learned the rules. I learned how to conduct myself in meetings. I think when I first was appointed, I believe I was in my 40s. I don't don't remember, but it was a great honor. Now, the MFA meetings were very good, too. Lots of things happen in those meetings that the public never knows about. But I kind of keep them under my hat for now. It's also a great way to build relationships, isn't it? Oh, yes. To be appointed by the governor to serve on the Humanities Board. What an honor. That was an honor. That lasted two years. I have to tell you the truth. It was far away, and I couldn't get to every single meeting. But I do enjoy the other board he appointed me to, which is the Art Council, which has to do with all of the statuture and all the paintings and everything. We have a, a say in where they're moved and the acquisitions, and that's a fun board. Three DePrisco jewelers, Boston, Wellesley, Osterville. Your brother, Albert, runs the Wellesley store. Uh-huh. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, do you go from the Boston store to the Osterville store in the summertime? Are you always here? How no, does that work? I go to Osterville. I go to Osterville on Mondays. And I sometimes go to Wellesley on Thursday mornings. So, you know, we circulate. But we have a private office in Florida as well. Not a store, a private office couple questions we ask everyone who sits where you are. And thank you very much for having us today. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received in your life? And can you pass that along to our listeners? It can be personal. It can be professional. You're not supposed to talk about your religion, but I happen to be, I don't want to call myself a religious woman. I try. I let God rule my life. He is my co-pilot, not to sound trite. And... A piece of advice that was given to me when I was young was always keep smiling and always keep God in your heart and you'll never be sorry. And there are things that happen in my life, like everyone else's, that can be very depressing. But I always feel happy because I do have God in my heart. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Oh, gosh. I just try to think clearly, think smoothly and weigh all the things that could happen by approaching it in different ways. And I usually come up okay. Your parents, we were talking about them earlier on in the interview, are still alive and kicking. What a blessing to have them still in your lives. Are they pleased with what you have accomplished here? And of course, what your siblings have accomplished? Of course they are, but they think I really shouldn't be working anymore, which I really shouldn't. I'm way past retirement age. But there are jewelers that I know who have worked. My father is still working. He's still selling things. He's a fine one to say that. Yeah, right. No, I mean, I probably should scale back. Then I can give 
time again to my music and time to a lot of things that I like to do. You know, Thanksgiving just went by and I said to myself, and I have to say it every time I, I watch the news on Thanksgiving morning and they're serving Thanksgiving meals, I'm, you know, very tired a lot because I'm working so many days. I always wanted to serve those Thanksgiving meals at like the Pine Street Inn and places like that. How about you and I make a promise that someday we're going to do that together? Yeah, maybe next year. What do you wish you knew, Donna, when you first got started in the jewelry business? I'll tell you what I wish I did, which I did not do. I wish that I photographed all the pieces that I made and created. Is there anything that you learned the hard way? Yes. Yes, I did. That there are a lot of people that are not honorable and not honest. There are thieves in every business. There are a lot of thieves in this business. And I am a person that thinks everyone is honest, but everyone is not honest. And I had to learn things about honor the hard way. When you are not working, what is your favorite pastime? I don't know. I love to socialize. Okay, I don't socialize as much as I used to, but I love to be like with my family, uh, little children, uh, the nieces and the nephews, because I have no children of my own. Uh, Like I said, I follow God's plan. It was not in God's plan for me to have a husband and children. And that's okay. That's okay, because the world is my children. What happens to you when you play the piano? I feel very happy. And I feel frustrated because, as I said, the talent never goes, but the technique goes. And during COVID, I was beginning to practice my old repertoire, and it was coming back. But it does take time to play and to practice. My final question. I believe that our definition of success changes as we go through our lives. If I'd asked you this question 20 years ago, 30 years ago, your answer may be different. But right now, in this chapter in your life, what does success mean to you? Success really means, and it it was the same 20 years ago, to be happy, to have people that you make happy, to have love, to have people love you and that you love and to do the best you can. If I can share whatever I've learned, I'm happy to do that. But to be happy and to love is is it. Donna DePrisco, my good friend, Donna Diamonds, thank you so much for being thank our guest. Thank you, Candy. I appreciate it. On the story behind her success. And that's the story behind her success for this week. If you know a woman I should interview for the show, reach out and tell me about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. There's also a full library of stories for you to listen to anytime you need a little dose of inspiration. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. <laughs>